Now, we are looking at the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and I ask, if you will, please, to turn to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. We turn to the letter to Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, and we begin reading at verse 8. Let's bow together in prayer. We ask, O Lord, that since your word is given to us and is altogether true and without error in the whole and in the part, that we, your people, would submit our minds and hearts and affections and wills to this word. And we also pray for those who may be in the midst of your worshiping people today who do not know you. And we would ask that the Holy Spirit would draw those to yourself, that lost people will be saved and saved people will continue being saved. That is, that since you have promised that your true people will persevere to the end, that you will use the means that you have appointed, word and sacrament, worship, prayer, the fellowship of your people, to bring us to our appointed home. We ask, therefore, that we will take this word with all seriousness and that you will open it to our understanding. In the name of Christ, the head and king of the church, we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Revelation 2, beginning at verse 8. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Please be seated. Last week, as we looked at the letter to Ephesus, we found that they were a wonderful church, but that they had abandoned the love that they had at first. And there was the call to us as the people of God to ask seriously the question, has my love for Jesus Christ cooled? But now we come to this church, Smyrna, and there is not one complaint against this church, not one. And I once preached on this passage by beginning this way. Though this church at Smyrna is altogether commended by Christ, it may be the most difficult with which to identify Our Lord is encouraging this church in the midst of persecution, and we are not much persecuted. Well, times have changed, and we see not only an incredible exponential increase of persecution of believers throughout the world, but we also see religious liberty eroded in our own country. And our culture does not care if you go to church. They're fine with it. Go to church. Indeed, religious freedom is now being defined by many as the freedom to worship as you see fit. But once you attempt to take the Christian faith into the world and into the workplace, 
That's another matter. Or when you have the audacity to say to someone, there is no other way to know God but through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Then slowly, perhaps not so slowly, we see persecution on the upswing. And so what we read here about the church in Smyrna and next week also about the church in Pergamum, these things are very, very applicable to where we live and certainly where many Christians are living around the world. So as we come to an understanding of this text, the first thing that we want to do is to see the church in its own setting. And so the first thing is the church's setting, the church's setting, the church at Smyrna. It was a well-favored community. It was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna was only second to Ephesus as a commercial center in that portion of Asia Minor. Coins describe Smyrna as first of Asia in beauty and in size. Now, please understand that when we talk about Asia and when we talk about the churches in Asia, uh, that we're talking about a particular location in Turkey. Um, I actually heard a very well-known preacher recently on the radio who didn't understand this and was talking about the churches in Asia as if Asia were what we typically mean when we mean Asia, but that's not what is meant in the New Testament. Asia is southwest Turkey, where Ephesus is located. It was a Roman province that was called Asia, with approximately 200,000 inhabitants in this city and environs around Smyrna. So Smyrna was a cultural center. It claimed to be the birthplace of Homer. There was a stadium there, a great library, a public theater, and it was called sometimes the Ornament of Asia. Polycarp is later bishop of the church in Smyrna, and Polycarp, you will recall, had known John the Apostle. But this great city, with all of its cultural delights, was also a center for idolatry and ritual emperor worship. And at each end of the city, there was a temple, one to Sibylle and another to Zeus. Sibylle was the mother goddess of Anatolia, of Turkey. Bruce Metzger says, almost 300 years before the writing of Revelation, the first temple in the world dedicated to the goddess Roma, to Rome, was built in Smyrna. Seventy years before John's banishment, the city dedicated a magnificent temple in honor of the emperor Tiberius. Therefore, it became the center of worship, both of Rome and Caesar. So Christians are functioning in a situation in which there is increased requirement to bow to the state and to worship the state and to worship the emperor And it is addressed by Christ in verse 8 in this way. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. What encouragement for this church that Jesus Christ addresses them. What an encouragement that he comes to them in their distress. Jehovah who became man who died on a cross and rose is the Lord who addresses them, the one who said, Do not fear him who is able to destroy the body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, who is the living, regnant Lord, addresses them right in the beginning of this epistle. So 
that was the environment in which the church of Smyrna proclaimed the gospel. It was a very cultured environment, and it also was an environment that was thoroughly pagan. Now, friends, I hope that you realize that our environment now is also pretty thoroughly pagan. If you cannot see the connection between what we read in the letters to the churches in Revelation and where we are now living today, then I would really encourage that you kind of catch up. We really do live now in a thoroughly pagan culture. That was the church's environment. That is the church's environment in which we find ourselves, as do multitudes of churches around the world. So we move along, and the second thing we see is the church's condition, the church's condition. And the first thing that we note about their condition is that their condition was one in which they were involved in tribulation. In verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Tribulation. Yet they are a very strong church. They are hated by the world, yet commended by Christ. What comfort that the Savior comes in verse 9 and says to the church, I know the omniscient Jesus Christ comes to them and he says, I know your tribulation. I really do know what you're going through. I understand what you are facing. And Jesus Christ comes to us through his word this morning and says to the church in our day and to you, believer, with whatever you are facing, and he says, I know. I really do know. I understand. And I'm in charge. No words of rebuke, no words of correction are found in this epistle to this church at Smyrna. What do the frowns of the world matter if we have the smile of Christ? What does it matter if the world frowns upon us if we know that we have the smile of Jesus Christ upon us? What would it matter for for some, some royalty that is about to be crowned king if he rides through a storm as long as he knows when he arrives he will be crowned? And so it is with the people of God today. Tribulation. But also, verse 9 mentions poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty. It evidently was hard to make a living, and it's not really difficult to understand why that might be so. You remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 34, that we read, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That church or those Christians, were undergoing very great difficulty. They had not yet been persecuted unto death, but they were persecuted and their goods had been despoiled. Now, I would suggest that what is probably happening with this church is that evidently because these believers refused to participate in emperor worship or other aspects of Smyrna's lifestyle because of their love for Jesus, for reasons of faithfulness to Christ... They're having a hard time making ends meet. There are certain occupations in which they could not be involved, or perhaps they're being excluded from certain occupations because they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That happens in many places in the world today. In some ways, that is beginning to happen here. 
But their poverty is material only. Spiritually, they are rich. Look at what it says. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now contrast that with another church. Chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 17, the church at Laodicea. This is how that church viewed their wealth and poverty. In chapter 3, verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now that brings a question. Would you prefer to be poor in the world's eyes, yet rich in God's eyes, or to be rich in Christ's estimation, but poor in the eyes of the world? Don't make material wealth your ultimate goal in life. The poverty in the eyes of the world will not always be in goods, of course, but those of this age without any knowledge of the sweetness of fellowship with Christ and with boasted philosophical systems will estimate us as poor compared to the rich lives that they claim to live, rich but hollow lives that they live. And brethren, always remember that we are rich in grace, are we not? That in Christ, Colossians tells us, are in him is found all of the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember what awaits us, an undefiled inheritance that will never fade away, and that inheritance is kept for us and we are kept for it, so that no matter what happens in this life, there is a wealth that belongs to anyone who is in union with Christ, that nothing and no one can take away. But also, this church is being slandered. We read that in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Evidently, what is happening in this city of Smyrna is that the Jewish population, which would have been protected by the state, are spreading lies about believers in Jesus. They hated the gospel. They hated justification by his blood. And many converts, we can probably assume, have come into the church from this synagogue. Those slandering the Jews, the text tells us, are not those Jews that are slandering the church. The text tells us are not really Jews. They are a synagogue of Satan. Not natural Jews, but those justified by faith are Abraham's spiritual descendants. That's what Paul the Apostle tells us in chapter 2 of the book of Romans when he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So it seems that the Jews in Smyrna are inciting the heathen against Christians who are spiritually descendants of Christ. When Polycarp, who was martyred in this city just a few years later, went into the great Colosseum there, the great theater there, it was Jews joining together with pagans who cried out for his blood. They were not simply unchristian, they were thoroughly anti-Christian. And Archbishop Trench has this chilling word to say about these Jews. 
the measure of their former nearness nearness to God. He means that former time in which Israel actually knew God and at various points in its history walked faithfully. The measure of their former nearness to God was the measure of their present distance from him. And what has happened to those Jews, I have seen happen to many a false professor of faith in Christ as well, who seem to have walked well for a while, but having walked away from the truth as it is in Jesus, actually become so antagonistic to the faith that their former measure of nearness to God was the measure of their present distance from him. But then as we move along in the text, we also see Christ's exhortation to this church. Be ready to die for my sake, essentially, he says. Verse 10, do not fear, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be ready to die for my sake, to give your life for the sake of of the gospel. Dark clouds are gathering. There is evidence of persecution that is, that is coming. It's a charged atmosphere. More tribulation is to come. And he says specifically in this verse that the devil is behind it all. The scripture teaches that there is a devil. He is called the God of this world with a small lowercase g. Men are just instruments to oppose Christ by opposing his church. And so he says, the devil is stirring this up ultimately, be ready to die for the gospel. Imprisonment brings with it the temptation to compromise, which is another way of translating this word tested, by the way. You may be tempted, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And since the source is the devil, I think it probably is a better translation of the word, that it's actually a temptation to compromise during this period of tribulation. Do you see? Times of tribulation can be times of temptation to compromise the gospel, just as can times of blessing. Be ready to die for the gospel. When I think of this passage, I often think, and this and some other passages in the New Testament, I often think of those five theological students during the period of the Protestant Reformation You see, when you went to Geneva and you studied under John Calvin or Lausanne and studied in the academy there, and you received what today we would call your Master of Divinity degree, they called it the Hanging Degree because they knew that you would would go back into a territory in France usually and you might last three weeks or three months, but you probably would be martyred for the Christian faith. So these five theological students are imprisoned in France. And Calvin wrote them a letter. Would you like to hear it? Here is what Calvin wrote. Our Heavenly Father has so expressly proved by action how much his strength is mighty in you that we doubt not that he will perfect his work. You know that in leaving this world, we do not go away on an uncertain venture. In addition to the confidence of eternal life, you have the assurance as children of his gratuitous adoption to enter your inheritance. That God should have appointed you his son's martyrs should be an added sign of this. Beloved brethren, act according to the word of David. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forsake thy law, and be ready to give your life at any time, seeing that the Lord employs your life 
in so worthy a cause as is the witness of the gospel, doubt not that it is precious to him. The hour draws nigh when the earth shall disclose the book which has been hid, and we after have been disencumbered of these fading bodies shall rise. Meanwhile, be the Son of God glorified by our shame. Let us be consoled with the sure testimony that we are persecuted and mocked for no other reason than that we believe in the living God. This is sufficient cause to despise the whole world with its pride till we be gathered into that everlasting kingdom where we shall fully enjoy those blessings which we now only possess in hope. And then these five, having read that letter, were led to the stake, and these young men sang the ninth psalm and recited scripture and the apostles' creed that we recited together this morning and die bravely as Christians. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He knows that some of them are going to die for their faith. They're going to give their lives for Jesus, and he is giving to them this word of exhortation. But fourthly, will you notice also his encouragements, Christ's encouragements that are found in this text. Now remember, there is no word of criticism. He does not say, you do this well, but I have this against you. There is no word of criticism for the church at Smyrna. Maybe the knowledge of persecution has made them very serious about Christ. Maybe the knowledge that they might die for Jesus has made them think very seriously about their fellowship with him. Maybe this is causing them to understand that they need to live consistently. Maybe as we watch the direction of our culture, it's a wake-up call that we also should walk faithfully with Jesus. What do you think? So his self-designation in verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, reflecting verse 17 of chapter 1, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This self-designation is the greatest encouragement to them because Jesus Christ is not in a grave. The same body that was placed in a tomb was raised by the Father from the tomb. Jesus Christ was victorious over death. And so he says to this church at Smyrna, and he says to us, you too can face martyrdom. He has the power over death. Jesus Christ is the one who controls history. And even the devil is God's devil and under his authority. That's why he says in verse 10, don't fear, do not fear. Do not fear him who is able to kill the body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And in the midst of this, he gives, he brings promises. What are the promises that he brings that are encouraging to this church? Well, first of all, the first promise is that the tribulation will be for a prescribed period of time. And so in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Ten days, obviously an idealized period of time. 
an allotted and determined period of time. And this is encouraging not only because the church knows that this tribulation will have an end to it, but because it stresses once again who is in control. If Jesus Christ can say, this is the allotted time of tribulation, then he is in control of the entire matter. Christ rules over the devil. And note, the Lord doesn't say, tribulation will not come. That's your great encouragement. Your great promise for me is that you won't have tribulation. He doesn't say anything like that. It is through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom we read in the book of Acts. In his own purpose, tribulation will come, but the encouragement, first of all, is it is under his sovereign control and is for a prescribed period of time. The next promise, also found in verse 10, is that there is a crown of life that awaits those who are faithful. Read again verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, Smyrna, according to archaeologists, was known as the crown of Iona. The crest of Mount Pagus evidently resembled a great crown. Whether or not he's contrasting what will eventually happen to the crown of Iona with also what will happen to the believer in Jesus is something of which I'm not certain. But the term that he uses here for crown is Stephanus, which is the crown that would be received by those who are involved in the Olympic and other games who were exhausted but victorious winners. And I cannot help but think of how the Apostle Paul spoke of his own latter end in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so there is the promise that those who are faithful will show themselves to be believers as they have confessed. And there awaits for them this great crown, this great garland. That's the promise from Jesus. Won't it be a wonderful thing when Jesus Christ places the garland on your head? And he says, you have run the race faithfully. And then we have a third promise. Some will die, but the faithful will not be harmed by the second death. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, keep your finger here and turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. We begin with verse 6. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In verse 14 of this chapter, we read, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
chapter 21, verse 8. Chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so we are told explicitly that these martyrs will not experience the second death. And we are told explicitly in the book, the second death is the lake of fire. Natural death is not the end of any human being's existence. You're going to continue to exist somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. These who suffer martyrdom and are faithful, after all, will show themselves to be who they have professed to be, Christians, and they will not experience the second death. And as these promises are brought to the church at Smyrna, we again hear the call, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You'd better take heed of the message. Do receive the promises that I'm giving. Receive the encouragement that comes from my lips, says Jesus Christ. Hear the word. Do not turn a deaf ear to the word that I am speaking or to the word that is being proclaimed this morning. And so the comfort, the comfort does not say the tribulation will not come. You can have your best life now. The comfort is I'm with you in the midst of it. I will give you the grace to bear it. Holiness of life will always stir up the world's hatred. Satan is busy destroying families and churches and wants to destroy Christians. I remember years ago there was a pastor who said about sister so-and-so, I don't remember her name, we'll call her Joan, Sister Joan. Sister Joan always spoke well of people. She was known for it. She never said an ill word about anybody. And in the prayer meeting, the pastor said, I believe, Sister Joan, I believe that you could say a good word even about the devil. He said, well, pastor, he stays on the job. (laughs) Well, he does. That's his business. He wants to destroy. Now, this book is written in the 90s of the first century. I'm convinced during the reign of Domitian. And it's only about 70 years later that the pastor of this church witnessed a good confession and gave his life for Christ. His name was Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. You've heard of him. Arrested, he was brought into the amphitheater in Smyrna. And since the Christians had no images in their church or in their churches, the government and the people rightly concluded that they did not believe in the gods, and so they call Christians atheists. The proconsul reminded Polycarp of his great age and urged him to join the huge crowd crying out, Away with the atheists! Revile Christ, said the proconsul to Polycarp, and I will release you. Polycarp's answer is famous. Eighty and six years have I served him, 
and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme him, my king, who has saved me? I am a Christian. The proconsul looked to the crowd. Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. The crowds replied, let him be burned. And so they brought wood to satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd and burning this believing pastor. And he asked not to be fastened to the stake. And he just stood there as the fire was lighted and burned to death. But in the midst of it, he gave a prayer. And the prayer is also recorded. Lord God Almighty, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I praise thee that thou hast judged me worthy of this day and of this hour, and to participate in the number of thy witnesses and in the cup of thy Christ. And then the flame engulfed him. And this was the year 155 A.D. A few thoughts. Bullet points. People of God, we just don't understand, but we need to. The New Testament teaches us the world will hate us. John chapter 16, if the world hated me, the world will hate you. They don't love your Christ. They don't love your gospel. They don't don't love your pursuit of holiness. The world will hate us. The statistics about persecution of Christians in the world, from one perspective, are grim, unless we remember the Lord reigns. Herman Hoeksema makes the statement, if the church is truly faithful, faithful in its confession and in its walk, unfurling the banner of its king and walking in the light in the midst of a world that is in darkness, the latter will naturally hate her, and the reproach and suffering from the side of anti-Christendom are inevitable. And we who live in the United States of America, who know Christ, are now in a position in which we are really, I think, called to re-evangelize America. And the evil one will not like it, and it will stir up all manner of opposition to Christ and his gospel and his church. And so we're going to have to ask ourselves, where is my treasure? What do I most value? Where is my wealth? Are we willing to lose our lives in order to find our lives? And I remind us again, we must be radically into the Bible or we're going to be deceived. We must be radically into the Bible or we will not be prepared. So the church needs to let relevance take care of itself. As the church attempts to be relevant, she becomes more irrelevant. When the church tries to be relevant, attempts to please the world, do things the world likes, rather than just being the church, she becomes irrelevant. The church should represent to the world those things that never change. So let the church be the church before the watching world. Do not try to pacify or appease the world. Keep your gaze on Christ and simply seek to please Him by loving Christ, loving the church, and loving your fellow human beings. And we may not have been called to die for Christ in prison, as some are today, but we are called to battle for Christ. And remember that Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail over Christ's church. And so in ultimate terms, we have nothing to fear. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, said Jesus. And in Christ, 
That is why this entire letter is suffused with triumph over death. So I think these things need to be kept together. On the one hand, there's this incredible, joyful triumph that belongs to all of us who know Jesus Christ. And in the midst of trouble and tribulation, that joy, not always happiness, but that joy should show. On the other hand, we need to take seriously what we see happening in our own country and in the world. We need to be praying for brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted even unto death. One of the persons much on my mind and heart is Pastor Saeed. Are you praying for him? We have now two pastors in the Sudan that, um, that have been imprisoned. And there are many, many others. North Korea. So maybe we need to learn the old hymns of the faith again. Maybe we need to learn again our theology from the hymn book. Maybe we need to remember who God is. Maybe we need to remember, am I a soldier of the cross? Remember the words? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. He's not left us alone. He's given us his word. His word that works, as the reformers would say, cum verbo, all right? The spirit working with the word. That's his promise. Trouble is here. Trouble is coming. But he will not leave and he will not forsake his own. But we have responsibility. And right now, I would say, our chief responsibility is to immerse ourselves in the preaching and in the reading of the word of God. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.